Welcome to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. If you're listening to this podcast, that means it must be a Wednesday. Every Wednesday we go ahead and we post a podcast where I sit down and talk with, well, I don't sit down, I'm actually standing, working from a standing desk. Um, have a conversation with a, a current and former journalist talking about some of the biggest headlines that have occurred within the last week based on my opinion. I handpicked six stories. Then I asked the journalist to go ahead and sort of cut through the headlines and help us understand what's really going on and why are we doing it. We're trying to give you straight talk to the listener so you have an understanding of what's really going on rather than a lot of the marketing and the influencers that are sort of out there. We do have a couple rules of engagement. The first and foremost one is we look for straight talk in salty language, i.e. cursing, it is acceptable. And then the final point is we're going to go ahead and we'll have two segments in which we uh, talk about three stories in each segment. I'm then going to ask the panelists in the following segment to go ahead and make a prediction. And then finally, if anyone has a comment for us, um, we're going to discuss those comments and uh, we'll read them on the air and then we'll discuss them. If you want to send a comment to us, send an email to inquiry at com. I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. So let me introduce you to our panelists. First and foremost, we have a gentleman who used to work at the South Florida Business Journal where he covered publicly traded companies as well as white-collar crime. Right now he writes about wellness and health business for his own um, publication marketing firm. That's John Fackler. What's going on, Mr. Fackler? How you doing, Mr. Zalowski? Glad to be back on the Unauthorized Podcast. We're glad to have you. Um, anybody who's been listening to the podcast, we've been on the air now a little bit over a year, they know that John is a bit of a birder. John's had some issues recently where he's walking down the street and he's got birds dive bombing him. They don't like where he's walking. And now, John, I don't know if you saw, but the Miami Herald published a story. They actually brought in a hawk expert, uh, somebody who deals with falcons. And they're taking really? these falcons or letting them loose in Miami Beach to try to scare off some of the dive bombing birds. Have you seen any of these, right. uh, these falcon handlers or hawk uh, handlers, Mr. Fackler? No, but I'll, I'll definitely be looking for them here in the uh... – I hope they bring these Falcons into Little Havana because I'm getting dive-bombed every day. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Another one of our stalwarts on the podcast is a gentleman who was journalist for 25 years, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune, and right now he has his own public relations and marketing firm called Groose Communications. That's no one other but John Groose. What's going on, John? Hey, Peter. It's always great to be on your show. John, uh, what's the latest dive uh, uh, story you can share with us? How's the how's the visibility been down there? It's been it's been terrific, actually. I I went up to Boynton Beach uh, this past weekend, and it was uh, fantastic. We saw a lot of life down there, some turtles and um, some sharks, and uh, some very nice sea uh, right on the reef, right outside uh, right outside the channel. Nice. That sounds fantastic. I, I would love to get into the water, but uh, I'm just not ready yet. I, it, it's still a little bit too cold. I want it to warm up a little bit. <laughs> and we'll then there. finally, finally, we, we have a brand new uh, journalist who's going to be joining us in this particular podcast. Hopefully he decides to do it ahead in the future. This is a gentleman who's been a journalist for close to 30 years or so. Right now, he works over at Bankrate. He's a senior mortgage writer. Some of you probably recognize his name. If you don't recognize him from Bankrate, you recognize him from the Palm Beach Post and or the South Florida Business Journal. And he actually even worked up in Fort Pierce. Who's that? That's Jeff Ostrowski. What's going on, Jeff? Oh, hey, I'm good. I, well, you said gentleman, and then you said you described an old guy, so I thought maybe you were talking about somebody else. But I, I guess that would be me. <laughs> old guy, listen, you, you, you like to surf. I don't know of anyone who's old, let's say, who, who's still a surfer or who, who surfs. How much surfing you, Jeff, and, and where, where, when you do it, where do you go? 
you know, as much as I can. And uh, I, I surf a lot here in South Florida. I'll surf up in Central Florida. Um, and hopefully I can get some trips into California and maybe Central America later this year. Nice, nice. You know, Jeff, there's been a lot uh, spoken about the number of Californians who are moving to Florida from California because of taxes and some of being prompted by, you know, the whole COVID-19 pandemic and companies allowing people to sort of work from home. Have you met any of these Californians and uh, are they surface? Oh, I, I haven't met many Californians moving here. It seems like the Californians mainly are flocking to Texas and Utah and Idaho and Montana. Um, but, uh, I mean, I see, like you do, I, I mean, driving around, it's like all New Jersey and New York and D.C. and Pennsylvania plates. So we're, uh, we're definitely be, being invaded by out-of-staters. I, I don't know how many of them are Californians, but, uh, but probably some of them are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, 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 Jeff, you you actually used to work with John Fackler way back in the day before he went into health and wellness writing uh, for his own <laughs> firm. Uh, can, can you share a story, maybe from your experience working with Mr. Fackler over at the Software Business Journal? Oh, oh, a Fackler story. I don't know. We we used to go out and play basketball at Brian Piccolo Park on Friday nights back when we were we were both more nimble. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That you know, Fackler was. Uh, he was never the butt of the joke. He was always just sort of on the, the, the sidelines uh, smirking as the, as the rest of us made fools of ourselves. <laughs> now, now, now is, it, is it true that he was a dominant center? He's led me to believe, uh, you know, over a couple beers and, 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 and cocktails, that he used to dominate on the court. Is that, can, can you provide any kind of clarity to that oh. statement? Uh, I just, yeah, I don't know that I would say dominant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I Probably, I, I was probably a few years too late for the the dominant version of Fackler. He was uh, he was more of a role player when we used to play. But then again, we were all role players. I mean, we're all uh, we're all broken down guys who who never really had much of a future on the court. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. Uh, Jeff Bankrate, um, someone who doesn't know Bankrate, uh, maybe they heard it, maybe they don't sort of know its space in the marketplace. Can you give people kind of an overview of uh, about Bankrate and what exactly you do uh, for the publication? Yeah, so Bankrate is a site that, uh, that it, it is focused on consumers. So our, our audience is um, home buyers, mortgage borrowers, people looking to refinance, um, and then we also uh, produce content for investors and savers. Um, so we're doing, uh, we're covering the news from uh, the consumer's perspective, and I, I write about the housing market and, and mortgage rates for Bankrate. Yeah, wow, fascinating, fascinating. And that's one of the reasons we were trying to get you on the podcast, so we're glad that you came out. So, uh, Jeff, just to remind you and remind our audience, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about COVID numbers now. We'll take a break, and then we're going to get into the first three stories. Uh, so here we go with the COVID numbers, uh, gentlemen. Uh, this is all comes from the Florida Department of Health. It comes from the um, dashboard, the COVID-19 dashboard. Anybody wants to check out these statistics, simply type in Florida Department of Health COVID-19 dashboard. The numbers will pop up. Again, there's been a lot of controversy about the statistics. Are they correct or are some numbers being omitted? There's somebody who used to be a data scientist for the state. That person is no longer with the state. And there's been a lot of talk about whether or not these numbers are legitimate. So I'm not here to say they're legitimate or they're illegitimate, but I am saying they are the official numbers. And I pulled these numbers today, which is the 26th of April. This podcast will come out on the 28th of April. So here's what we got, guys. 2.2 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state of Florida, 34,912 deaths, and 89,534 people have been hospitalized. Now, in the Tri-County, South Florida area, which is made up of Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County, 
843,200 cases in South Florida with 473,200 Miami-Dade, 23800 in Broward, and 139200 in Palm Beach County. Overall, South Florida is going to represent 38.2% of all cases of COVID uh, documented by the state um, thus far. Now, on the death count, again, 34,912 people have died with 11,744 in South Florida, 6,100 in Miami-Dade, 2,900 in Broward County, and 2,800 in Palm Beach County. The death count, interesting enough, is 33.7% for South Florida of the overall state versus the confirmed cases is 38.2. And then finally, hospitalizations, 89,534 people have been hospitalized with 29,900 in South Florida, of which 13,300 in Miami-Dade, 9,900 in Broward, and 6,700 in Palm Beach County. Guys, anybody want to make any comments about what's going on currently with the COVID cases, with the uh, possibility that the CDC will pull back the requirements or the recommendation of wearing a mask out when you're, you know, when you're on the street and you're not around other people uh, or those that you're not, you know, you're not living with and aren't close to you. Um, anybody want to make a comment uh, whatsoever? Uh, was, it, was there any trend lines, Peter, over the last week or two here in South Florida, Miami? Just curious. I, well, I what, yeah, what I can tell you is that it is continuing to inch up. Like last week, South Florida represented 38.1% of all the cases of COVID. Right now we represent 38.2%. And what we're also seeing is for the longest time, Palm Beach County had more people uh, who have died of COVID than Broward. Broward's now surpassed Palm Beach County, and it's surging in terms of the number of deaths. Like last week, you had about 8.0% of the state total was in uh, Broward County. This week, about 8.3%. So you can see oh. something going on in Broward. I haven't really heard anybody sort of explain it. One thing I have heard, heard thrown out there, it'd be more so on the case count rather than the death count, is the number of young people who are suddenly catching it uh, because of spring break and everything else that was going on. Wow, wow, interesting. Yeah, um, I'm still not, I'm still not confident. I mean, I'm, you know, I've had, uh, we spoke about in previous podcasts, but I've had both vaccinations, and, um, you know, I'm still, even when I go out, like last night, we went out for a few drinks, and you know, nobody's wearing a mask. I'm not wearing a mask. I've got all these co- comorbidities. If I get if I get hit with this COVID, I'm going to get taken out at the knees. I'm telling you. But, <laughs> well, according to according to Jeff, you weren't a dominant center, so I don't think that's going to be a big deal if you lose a knee or two. <laughs> well, listen, seriously. I mean, listen, Jeff, Jeff is um, still very young looking. Uh, he's the guy who never aged himself, <laughs> and, I, and I'm going and I'm going sideways. So. <laughs> now, in fact, the important question is: those falcons that were dive bombing you, were they wearing masks? <laughs> so I was actually getting dive bombed by magpies. I was getting attacked by magpies. So the falcons uh, be very interesting to see if the magpies are wearing masks. So nice. John, you want to mention anything before we take our first commercial break, and then we come back and we talk about the first three stories? Well, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but, but the dive operators now don't require you to wear masks on the boats anymore. So um, I, I noticed that in the last couple of weeks. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Yeah, and as we mentioned last week during our podcast, uh, the South Beach uh, Wine and Food Show is going to be going on, um, and they're not going to require any kind of vaccination or anything like that in order to get in. So um, 
That being said, uh, guys, we'll go ahead. We'll take our first commercial break. The other side of the break, we're going to talk about ghost kitchens. We're going to talk about renters having the right to sue debt collectors over evictions. We're also going to talk about a story that Jeff authored having to do with is there a crash in the, on the horizon for the housing market. Stay tuned. We'll catch up with you on the other side of the break. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Before I started doing these podcasts, I basically was in the business of being a licensed real estate broker a contributing um, columnist for the Miami Herald, as well as the Miami Real Deal, but also expert witness work in consulting. So if you are looking for an expert witness or if you're looking for consulting services, a straight talk perspective as to what's going on in a particular marketplace, a building, or the, what happened previously for whatever your situation is, whether you are a, an attorney, whether you are an institutional fund looking to invest, or whether you're a lender who's trying to come up with some sort of a strategy and approach uh, for your lending committee going forward, I just might be able to help you. To get a hold of me, please uh, reach out to Peter at condovultures.com. That's Peter at condovultures.com. Or give me a call to the office at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859. If you're enjoying the Condo Vultures podcast and you want more information, but this information in the written word as well as charts, why not sign up for the South Florida Distressed Market Intelligence Report? To do so, go to condovulturesrealty.com. Slightly below the main banner and logo, you will see a sign-up box. It's called the South Florida Distressed Market Intelligence Report sign-up. Simply enter your email address, hit subscribe, and lo and behold, every week you'll be sent a newsletter giving you the latest updates on what's going on in the distressed market in South Florida. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. We're going to get into our first three stories again that I handpicked, and I've asked a journalist to go ahead and um, uh, review and give us their feedback. So let's start off with uh, John Fackler. John, this is coming out of the Miami Herald. I'm going to read you the headline, and I'll read you the first couple graphs, and then I want to get your take on it. So here we go with the headline. Ghost kitchens, in air quotes, are popping up in Miami parking lots. More could come under a new law. First couple graphs, John. Um, John Xavier Bolton and uh, Charday Barnes came to Brickell looking for a restaurant and wound up eating in a parking lot. The couple visiting from Atlanta found the restaurant Man vs. Fries listed on Grubhub delivery app and wandered into Mi in Miami's Manhattan, past high-rises looking for it. They spotted what looked like a food truck rally next to the Metrail in the back of a full parking lot. We thought it was one of the buildings across the street. Then we saw the trucks. John, what's going on is these um, uh, food trucks are popping up. They are marketing like they're regular restaurants, and uh, people are seeking them out. So rather than going to a brick-and-mortar traditional, people are wandering into these food trucks. So the question I have for you, John, is is this, is this a good development, given the fact that we have a lot of restaurateurs who are struggling to keep the lights on, and now suddenly you have competition coming from groups that might have less infrastructure costs? What, what say you, Mr. Packler? Yeah, well, it's not so great for the restaurants, is it? Um, listen, the food truck uh, truck craze continues. Um, you know, there was a point when you had the food trucks getting together. A lot of the food trucks were somehow related to restaurants. Uh, this is, you know, pre-pandemic. And uh, they sort of used the food trucks as sort of a marketing tool. But what's happening now is I think uh, when you have these pop-up um, food trucks in, in the parking lots, they, they're probably not as regulated as um, other food trucks were or even restaurants. I'm not sure what the insurance um, uh, issues are. Maybe there's less insurance regulations. So, you know, from a, from a business point of view, profit and loss, it's probably a great idea to do this. They're not hamstrung by extra costs and regulations to have a pop-up. 
And then, you know, if, if something goes sideways, they can just disappear. Um, you know, people <laughs> people are seeking them out. They're still being reviewed. Like you said, they're on the apps as far as the um, uh, delivery uh, apps, and uh, and um, no, it's kind of a it's kind of a shrewd marketing uh, ploy. I don't know if it's just uh, uh, typical to Miami, because as we know, Miami is full of hustlers, and this is a great hustle. <laughs> Jeff, um, there's a company called Reef Technology. They own or lease many of the parking lots um, where the kitchens operate. So let, let me read you just a couple of graphs, and then I just want to get your, your big-picture macro perspective on it. So, so Reef, again, is this technology company that leases a lot of the land uh, or owns the land, and they turn around and they rent it out to these food trucks. So here we go. Reef is already running these pop-up eateries in 15 Miami-area locations while operating in a somewhat gray area. The kitchens have businesses licenses and health permits, but prior to the creation of the, the new city pilot program, Miami zoning – didn't explicitly set off for what these uh, companies can operate on. In a city of sky-high rents and stubborn red tape, Proponency Ghost Kitchens is a low-cost expansion opportunity for up-and-coming restaurateurs and the future of dining at a time when people have become accustomed to ordering their food uh, on apps and eating at home. But critics worry this approach could bring a nuisance uh, to lots in their residential areas, and they say it's fast unwieldy growth could further disrupt the restaurant industry in a hospitality-driven city that's still recovering. Jeff, is this good, is this bad, or is this the city just trying to uh, uh, increase its tax revenues by, uh, by, by allowing anybody and everybody to operate? What say you? Yeah, well, it's, it's fascinating. It's a, one of the DDA uh, board members who was quoted later in that piece uh, by Carlos Frias from the Herald said, uh, this could be the best thing in the world or this could be the worst thing in the world. And that, that's kind of what I thought, too. Um, I mean, you know, on the one hand, uh, restaurants are just notoriously expensive. They have a high failure rate. Uh, you know, you, you see all these restaurants coming through the various locations in South Florida where they drop half a million or a million on tenant improvements, and then the restaurant's gone in six months or a year. So, I mean, clearly from the uh, the perspective of the entrepreneur, the restaurateur, this is a, a much better, lower-risk way to run a restaurant. But then, uh, like Fackler was saying, I mean, the, the whole concept of ghost, ghost kitchens has taken off around the country. But the idea is you have a physical space, you have somebody coming through there and cleaning it, you've got uh, a bunch of different restaurants sharing the, the cost of the, the convection oven and everything else. And so there's at least some uh, some sense that, uh, you know, this is clean and safe. And it's I don't get, get quite the same sense when I go to a food truck. I mean, you're looking – there it's a, you know the back door is always open they've got a you know there's a propane tank sitting outside running the, the place and and so you know you just wonder if uh, if you're creating some kind of a disease vector but uh now i i mean i love it when i when i first thought saw the story i, I thought uh, that we were going to be reading about squatters rights in parking lots but uh i mean apparently it's uh, since since the uh, reef uh, owns the you know either owns the land or is, is legally operating there i mean i guess it makes sense and uh yeah, these parking lots aren't being uh, taken by commuters anymore, so it's a, a way to, to, you know, squeeze some revenue out of these uh, these empty parking lots in in downtown areas. So I don't know. It's just it's fascinating. I guess uh, you know I'll just I'll, I'll paraphrase the, uh, the the board member again from the DDA saying this, this could be the best thing ever or it could be the worst thing ever. It's it's probably a little bit of both. You, you, you know, I, I've done a lot of travel, and everybody on this podcast has done a lot of travel. One of the things that I've always found is when you go to a restaurant, you pay a premium. When you go to some of these, like, um, lack of a better word, a food court, let's say, it's typically discounted. You know, I think it's Asia. You go to some of these food halls in Asia, and everything is, like, dirt cheap. I mean, it's cheap to begin with, but it's especially cheap. 
what I'm wondering, guys, is um, every time I've seen these food trucks, um, they're as expensive as a regular restaurant with brick and mortar, sometimes even more. Um, am I getting that right, or, or, or am I maybe like an old codger who's uh, complaining about somebody being on my grass? What, uh, you know, what, what do you think, Jeff? What do you think, John? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, I, actually, I heard a, a really good uh, pitch from a, a guy who was a, opening a, a food hall in Denver a couple of years ago, and he said, hey, you know, it's, uh, it might be 15 bucks for that bowl of ramen, but if you went to a full sit-down restaurant with a, with a white tablecloth, it would cost you 30 bucks." So the argument is that the food hall gives you high-quality food, and it's, it's expensive, but not as expensive as if you went to a full-service restaurant. So I, I think that's, uh, that's their whole pitch to consumers. Makes sense. Back where you want to add anything? Can we go to story number? No, two? totally agree with right. Jeff. I think that's that's it. All right, all right. Um, story number two, Jean. We're going to go to you. This is coming out of American Banker. It's coming out of American Banker, and let me give you the headline, and I will give you the first couple graphs. Okay, headline: CFPB, which stands for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. CFPB rule gives renters the right to sue debt collectors over evictions. Here we go, uh, Jean, first couple graphs, then I'll ask you to comment. The Consumer Financial um, Protection Bureau issued a rule Friday enabling renters to sue debt collectors who failed to disclose the rights of tenants established in a recent federal eviction moratorium. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention announced the freeze on evictions due to the coronavirus pandemic last year. It prevents evictions in cases where tenants filed a written declaration of the inability to pay. A tenant who has not filed such a declaration can still be evicted. The moratorium is scheduled to end June the 30th. Um, John, what, what do you make of that? Uh, it is an our tenants who um, basically uh, been able to sort of skate on paying their rent because there's no evictions, is this just giving them more firepower to be able to not pay rent, or is this a situation where 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 maybe the score is being even because uh, you know people can file a claim against you and lo and behold it screws up your credit and therefore downstream it's going to be much more difficult to obtain financing and or to maybe even rent another place. What say you, Sean? You know, I as I was reading the story, I was thinking, you know, over the past year and a half, um, there's been sort of a steady erosion of property rights and and a steady shift um, from, you know, the landlord holding power uh, over to the uh, renters. And, um, I, you know, I don't know if this, you know, obviously at first it was billed as, you know, sort of the exceptional, this is an exceptional circumstances. We have a pandemic and, you know, I think everybody clearly understood that we were like in, um, you know, this this, you know, once in a lifetime uh, uh, situation and, you know, renters needed a break. And um, uh, but it seems like it seems to me there's a sense that um, undoing that and giving property owners back their their rights uh, to evict people um, is going to be uh a lot more difficult than, you know, just sort of, hey, we're going to go back to the way things were. And it seems like um, there's been sort of a steady erosion of, of, of the of property owner's ability to do what they need to do to kick out, you know, non-paying renters. And, you know, this is just another part of that story. I don't know. It seemed like um, it, fit, it fits into a pattern, you know. Uh, that we've seen yep. over the last year and a half, and it's going to be, I think, much harder to undo than, than um, you know, we might have thought. 
Just to chime in, there, there was one bit of fine print there. So I listened to that CFPB conference call with reporters last week, and uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't advertise this in the news release. But so this, this moratorium applies only to landlords who use debt collectors to collect rent. So if you're, you know, presumably if, you, if you've got, uh, you know, two units in a duplex and you're collecting the rent yourself, you're, you're not covered by this. And so that that's just one one small small bit of fine print that's probably important. To, you know, I'm sure for the the huge apartment complexes that turn over un, unpaid debt to uh, debt collectors, this applies. But it's um, so it it doesn't apply if if you're collecting the debt yourself. So that's uh, that's just one small caveat. It's a, and that's a great point. Thank you for adding it. Um, Mr. Fackler, you've talked on this podcast in recent episodes, previous episodes, about how you used to be an owner, now you're a renter, and you wouldn't own again. Um, what do you make of this from a renter perspective? Is this good? Do renters need much more protection from the big, bad landlords? Um, what say you, Mr. Renter? Well, one of the, one of the things I, I found really interesting about this article was, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a real estate uh, expert like uh, are all the panelists, so I'm always looking at this from the you know from the point of view of the renter or the buyer. In this case, I found it interesting that you know if I'm hearing about this moratorium, uh, eviction moratorium, and I know the government's behind it, the federal government, I might think that it's covered and that I don't have to do anything physically. For example, you must um, have a written. Um, uh, you know, exemption here. Um, and, you know, it has to be in writing, or if it's not in writing, you know, you can still get evicted. Um, and that's that's something that I wouldn't even know, you know, uh, just being a dumbass, you know. <laughs> uh, I, 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 you know, I wonder how many other people also are taking, uh, taking it for granted that the government has got me covered and that I don't have to do anything in writing. You know, I'm wondering, is there any instructional base and where and where does it come from that tells people that listen you need to do this in writing because if you don't your landlord can still kick you out is there any you know is there any database that that instructs people what to do i don't even know all right all right so 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 basically um it's been written a lot about john if you go in there and you sort of uh, dig through all of the um the language effectively somebody who's not paying the rent, they need to notify their landlord effectively that they're falling behind on the rent because of the pandemic, whatever the case might be. And as long as the landlord is notified, it's one thing. If the person who is the tenant not paying, if they don't notify the landlord, that's my understanding. And I'm not an attorney and anybody should check with their legal, legal services that are out there. If you can't afford attorney, um, uh, check with them, but effectively put the landlord on notice that you can't pay your rent as a result of the pandemic. And therefore you're fine. If you don't notify them, then it just looks like you're skipping out and you're squatting. And that's yeah, a fine line. I think that would create it. At least my, my, well, my, well, my point, my point was, you know, a lot of people might think they just have to notify the landlord verbally and not in writing. You see that? that well, 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 John, there's something, there's something in real estate called statutes of fraud. And basically what it says is if it's in writing, if it's not in writing, it never happened. Now, uh, you can have a contract if two parties agree to something verbally, but it's much easier to sort of defend or to bring a lawsuit if there's actually something in writing, and that's because it's a, a you know sort of like contract law. And, again, I'm not an attorney. But generally speaking, right. put it in writing. Uh, if you put it in right. writing, it's going to improve your situation. And if you don't put it in writing, chances are, you know, you might get turned out on the street like uh, we've heard about recently. You guys remember, uh, what is it, a few weeks ago, there was that woman in Brickell Avenue area who was basically getting evicted 
um, and it turned into a gunfight, and she opened fire on the police coming to evict her, and they returned fire and killed her. So you can see this is really high, um, you know, high stakes type of situation right now. So basically, I would say put it in writing and reach out to legal services. There's legal services all throughout the country uh, where, where there's attorneys basically who are there to sort of help you out any way they can or at least point you in the right direction. So anybody want to mention anything? Anyone want to mention anything before we move on? Well, similar uh, rules, Peter, around mortgage forbearance. So this is uh, for the homeowners and, and not for renters. But, you know, they, the federal government and the CARES Act provided all sorts of really generous benefits to uh, homeowners. And you can you can miss mortgage payments for, you know, it was a year, and I think that's now been extended to a year and a half. Um, but same thing, you have to notify your your uh, lender or your mortgage servicer that you're you're not going to be paying. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's probably a good philosophy. What do they say? Disclose, disclose, disclose. So you just keep that in mind. You disclose. You let the people know where you're coming from, and you have some sort of paper trail with it. Chances are, you know, everybody understands we're going through a very difficult situation, and there is a lot of empathy and uh, compassion out there, at least from, you know, from what I've seen. Uh, definitely with the government, with the stimulus programs and the things like that. So, so if you're in one of these situations, you know, reach out. There is help that, you know, people are out there willing to help you. Um, story number three. Jeff, we're going to go to you because you wrote this story. This is on bankrate.com. I'm going to read the headline. I'll read the first couple of graphs. And then, Jeff, if you can just sort of uh, provide any kind of feedback um, you can about it. I won't ask you to comment on it, but just want to provide some, like, uh, you know, behind the scenes if possible. Here's the headline. Is the housing market about to crash? Here's why experts say the answer is no. Okay, first couple of graphs. U.S. housing markets on fire. Double-digit appreciation is the rule. Giddy sellers are sifting through multiple offers. Frantic buyers are forced to pay more than asking price, sometimes by more than $100,000. The real estate party is in full swing. The National Association of Realtors, they said last week that prices of existing homes soared to a record 17% from March of 2020 to March of 2021, a pace that eclipsed even the eye-popping appreciation of the last boom. Wow, Jeff, it sounds like uh, everything's humming, but the experts say uh, nothing to worry about. What, uh, what can you tell us about it? Well, well, first of all, I enjoy that oral interpretation of my work. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I remember, you know, a year ago thinking, okay, the, you know, that I wasn't the only one who thought this, but everyone thought the housing market was going to tank, the stock market was going to tank. And, of course, we've seen the exact opposite. So yes. we've seen this just crazy boom in terms of demand for homes. Uh, the prices are rising. People are, are, you know, engaging in these bidding wars, like I mentioned in the in the piece, and so the kind of the obvious question is: Is this going to be a repeat of what we experienced in in 2007? I mean, another just uh, frothy boom that uh, that can't be sustained. And the the fundamentals now are so different from from where they were 15 years ago. So it's uh, you know on the the supply side of the supply and demand equation, we've got uh, this record low levels of existing home inventory. We've got uh, home builders who uh, who are basically you know selling everything that they can build and and haven't really ramped up in the past 10 years. So there's there's no real glut of homes for sale. And then uh, on the demand side, it's still pretty hard to get a, a loan. I mean, it, according to the New York Fed, the average uh, credit score or average FICO score for borrowers in the fourth quarter of last year was a record level. It was almost 800. Uh, I think 786 was the number. And, I mean, 786 is almost perfect credit. So, I mean, wow. it, most most borrowers right now 
are in good shape. It's not like what we saw 15 years ago, you know, when you had uh, strippers or uh, I think that was the, the famous uh, scene from the big short or you, or you had, uh, you know, public clerks making uh, 12 bucks an hour who were qualifying for $500,000 loans. This is uh, this is the complete opposite of that. So, you know, if you, homeowners have good credit or, the, you know, the people who are buying and who are, are getting approved for mortgages now have very good credit and they have plenty of equity and they're coming in with big down payments. So the, the consensus among housing economists is, uh, yes, we're, we're in a, a boom, but uh, it, if it crashes, it, it's not going to look anything like the crash we had 15 or you know, 12 to 13 years ago. Interesting, interesting. Uh, John, I'm going to read you the kicker quote at the end of Jeff's piece, and then I'll just ask you a comment. This comes from uh, Ralph McLaughlin. He's the chief economist at financial technology firm House.com. Uh, the quote is, I'm not worried about a housing bubble. The fundamentals are all there. Low supply combined with growing demand for home ownership. To suggest the overheating we're seeing in the housing market is not based on animal spirits, but on an unfortunate and coincidental series of market forces over the past year. John, what, uh, what do you make of that? Um, is this a different, um, uh, is it different this time than last time? Well, you know, we, we've all been like here for a while, 30 years in journalism in Florida. And then if you, if you are a student of Florida history, you can look back and see booms and busts all through Florida's history. And, you know, none of them is exactly the same. And, um, you know, this, this Florida, Florida's real estate is boom and bust. I mean, um, the, the thing about this that uh, is kind of worrisome is that uh, we have all kinds of market distortions um, you know, from from the easy money to the pandemic to the way people are, you know, uh, escaping multifamily housing to single family housing. We've got all these like weird things happening, these distortions. And, um, you know, once all that sort of settles down, um, interest rates go back up, uh, you know, we get a recovery in the economy, we have, you know, people uh, leaving, you know, suburbia for the for the cities again. I mean, what, you know, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see, um, you know, what happens. And of course, there's always the possibility of, you know, some crazy event, like uh, a crazy, unforeseen uh, event. It could be, you know, it could be a war. It could be, you know, a, a new variant of COVID. I, I don't know. You know, you can think of a lot of bad scenarios, but um, certainly, you know, there's there's going to be. You can't you can't go at this kind of uh, pace of increase, uh, you know, forever, <laughs> or else no no one's going to be able to buy a home. <laughs> Right. Uh, Jeff, I want to ask you just in general, you don't have to comment about this piece, but just in general, um, we got a moratorium in place on the for, on the, uh, the mortgages, on uh, foreclosures, if you will. There's forbearances in place or things like that. What are you hearing on the street? Are banks going to be aggressive uh, once it all comes to an end and it expires, whether it's, uh, you know, in the summer or maybe sometime in the fall? President Biden's talking about Fourth of July. People are going to be able to get back together. You can celebrate with your family members because we've all been vaccinated. At some point, the economic stimulus program is probably going to start to wind down. So you would assume the moratorium is going to be lifted. What's waiting on the other side as a result of the moratorium, whether it be evictions and or foreclosures? And um, did anybody talk about that just as you've been reporting out your, you know, the, the, the fine work you're doing? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, the, so the foreclosure question is a, a good one because, I mean, obviously that was the, the, a huge issue and the, the crash of 2008, and we it, it took us years in South Florida to dig out from all of our foreclosures. But it, it seems like lenders remember that even better than we do, and so they really have no interest in foreclosing. And so, you know, from by all accounts, lenders have been very generous in, in working with uh, with borrowers and, and granting forbearance. Um, I, you know, I don't know that they would legally be able to uh, even start foreclosure proceedings if they wanted to, but they haven't. Mm-hmm. So foreclosures are at record lows right now. And then, so the wild card is that uh, we, we've had this economic crash or the slowdown in unemployment, but at the same time, home values have been soaring. And, uh, and because we don't have a bunch of underwater uh, borrowers like we did uh, 12 to 14 years ago, People really have a lot of equity in their homes. So the, the general consensus is, you know, even if I'm uh, if I'm a homeowner and I, I don't go back to work, say I'm a, an airline pilot and I, you know, I'm not going back to my 150,000 or 200,000 a year airline pilot job because the airline pilots cut back. I, I'm not going to yeah. lose my home to foreclosure. I'll, I'll just sell it. I mean, houses are selling in, you know, in a weekend right now. So you, you put your house on the market, you, you sell it for, for well more than you paid for it, and you go rent somewhere. And so, uh, you know, your house doesn't go into foreclosure. You don't have the take the hit to your credit score. You don't lose the money. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not ideal for that, uh, that airline pilot to have to go, you know, rent a place. But it's, it's not going to be the same devastating scenario we saw 10 and 12 years ago where everyone had their credit dinged and, and was, uh, you know, just miserable because they'd lost a home to foreclosure. So that, that seems to be the consensus now that we're going to have some uptick in foreclosures maybe in 2022, but it's, it's going to be very mild compared to what we saw during the Great Recession. Fantastic insight. Um, thank you, Jeff. Um, guys, let's go ahead. We'll take our, our uh, next commercial break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about theft and fraud related to real estate out in Durrell. We're also going to talk about this uh, brand-new condo tower that's been proposed named after a don't call it a strip joint. Call it a cabaret, a project called 11. 90% of the buildings are already sold. 90%. We're talking less than a month. And then finally, we're going to talk about a, um, a developer. He just secured a $128 million construction loan. So stay tuned. We'll get into that on the other side of the break. After a one-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're bringing back the condo correction tours. I'm Peter Zalewski the host of this podcast. I'm also the one who will be leading these tours. These are three-hour tours where we go to a particular neighborhood. We walk the neighborhood. We talk about market conditions. We look and talk about buildings. We also talk about what's going on in those particular buildings. Everyone who attends the tour, uh, they're given a handout talking about the, what's the current state of that particular market from a buyer as well as a seller perspective. It's real heavy on the information in terms of the handout, but it's also really uh, interesting and insightful based on the stories behind the buildings and how they are performing. So I encourage you. If you're in the market for a condominium, if you're trying to work to get listings of a condominium, this is probably a tour that you want to uh, take. It's straight talk, much like our podcast, and chances are you're going to enjoy it. You're probably going to want to attend all of the tours going forward. To get a schedule of our upcoming tours, please go to condovultures.eventbrite.com. Again, condovultures.eventbrite.com. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski, having a conversation about some of the biggest headlines that I thought occurred within the last week. I'm asking a journalist, current informer, to go ahead and provide some feedback. Who do I have? 
I have John Fackler. John used to write about white collar crime and publicly traded companies uh, based in South Florida for the South Florida Business Journal. I have John Gruce, who was a journalist for north of 25 years, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. He has his own firm now called Gruce Communications. And then finally, I have uh, Jeff Ostrowski. He's a senior mortgage uh, reporter and writer over at Bankrate.com. Guys, uh, let's get into story number four, and let me just sort of set the um, set the scene. Whenever the money is flowing, everybody comes out of the woodwork to try to get their cut of it. So let me just give you that thing. John Fackler, I'm going to start off with you. Uh, headline, Miami Herald, who committed theft and fraud at this Durrell real estate firm? Lawsuits are piling up. John, I'll read you the first couple of graphs, and I'll ask you to comment. Uh, Jennifer Hernandez did almost everything right. The single mother of three spent four years paying off her bills after her divorce to improve her credit score. She also scored away enough money for a down payment on a house. But according to a lawsuit and police report filed by Hernandez, she made one mistake. She trusted Alfonso Santiago, who's the vice president of the Durrell-based firm, KMTG Property Management and Investments. Ms. Hernandez said, I went to see them in May 2020. They showed me a four-bedroom, three-bath house in Miramar in a private community with a good school. He told me that they would put in a bid on the house and remodel it. I just had the wire hand ten grand, and the whole thing would cost me four hundred eight thousand five hundred. It was a no-brainer. John, now uh, you used to write about white-collar crime down here in South Florida. This woman, as well as others, are filing lawsuits claiming that uh, this group took off with their money, and the group that's being uh, uh, alleged to have taken off with their money—they're blaming someone else. John, what, what what do you make of this? And is this the beginning of maybe some uh, a whole series of these types of stories we might be seeing coming down the pipe, especially as the real estate market is getting as robust as we all keep talking about? Yeah, we've we've talked about this in previous podcasts. Um, we started to see a trend. That, I don't know if it was exactly a trend, but a, a few cases of this uh, type of fraud um, uh, again as the real estate market heats up. Um, pretty much uh, similar to other markets. You know, we can go back to the old IPO craze when we saw a lot of fraud. Um, and it's very typical of what's happening now. Um, this almost sounds like the old bait switch. <laughs> I put this out uh, on this poor woman. You know, it, it, I don't know if she saw this place sight unseen or if they pulled out and how they pulled out, but um, don't know too much of the details. But it surely sounds like a, uh, when the money's flowing, uh, the fraud starts to get going. And, and uh, Jeff, I want to get your perspective. Uh, let me read a graph out of this, and then I'll just ask you a comment. Uh, according to CoreLogic Mortgage Fraud Brief for the first quarter of 2021, which measures fraud committed against banks by mortgage applicants, the Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Pompano Beach metro area ranked third in the nation out of the top 15 cities with the highest fraud risk. Seven other Florida cities appeared on the list, including Tampa, Orlando, Fort Myers, Sarasota, Daytona Beach, Lakeland, and Palm Bay. Uh, Jeff, is Florida just misunderstood, or do we have a lot of fraudsters who are running hustles and, um, you know, uh, people should be more aware of it now and do their due diligence? Or this, is this buyer beware? What, what say you, Jeff? <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm shocked that there would be fraud in, in <laughs> any sort of commercial transactions in Florida, but certainly real estate. Um, no, I did. I looked at that uh, CoreLogic report that you you just mentioned. I looked at that last week when it came out. And it really, Florida hasn't budged. We've always been, uh, you know, for, for 30 years, we've been at the top of all these lists. Um, but, you know, actually what's surprising to me is that we haven't heard more tales of, of fraud like the, the one that you just read about from the uh, from the Herald, or I guess in this case alleged fraud. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I remember during the, the housing boom and bust, the, the 
mortgage scams, housing scams were just rampant in South Florida. Um, it, it seems like that's that's been quite muted. I mean, the, the lenders are much more careful. You know, back uh, 15 years ago, lenders were throwing money at anybody who would take it, and so it was uh, it was easier for scammers to to steal money. I, I get the sense now that yes, we're still you know compared to the rest of the country, we're still the fraud capital, so we can uh, we can hang our hats on that. But um, it, I, I just I get the sense that the, the scale is much lower. They're just uh, you know the, the the money's not flowing as freely. You know, obviously a lot of people are, are throwing money at real estate, but it's it's not the dumb money uh, yet that we saw 15 years ago. Definitely nice, nice, nice. But 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 again though, if you're in an issue, chances are you're going to be able to raise more capital and or refinance your way out of it, at least buy some uh, oxygen, if you will. So that's the only point I would make. Uh, Jean, we're going to go to you with story number five. This is coming out of the real deal. If you guys remember, about a month ago or so, we had um, we talked about Catherine Kalergis' piece, and she's one of our regular uh, podcasters, uh, 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 contributors. Uh, she was talking about how a brand-new condo was going to be launched uh, right across the street from uh, a cabaret, don't call it a strip joint, uh, called Eleven. Eleven. So now, um, here's what we got, John, and, and I want to hear your, uh, what you got to say. Eleven Condo Tower, planned for downtown Miami, reaches 90% of units under contract in two months. I misspoke. I said one month. It took them two months. I don't know what the hell they were doing all that extra month. Uh, developers plan to seek $155 million to $170 million in construction financing this summer. John, here's the first couple graphs. It's last call for potential buyers of the 11 hotel and residence of Miami Developer Property Market Group and 11 partners officially launched sales in February for the 375-unit hotel and condo tower planned for the downtown Miami, downtown Miami's Park West neighborhood, and now 90% of the units are under contract. Buyers put down a non-refundable deposit of 10% of the purchase price for the 340 units at the uh, in the 35 excuse me 65-story building. They will have to put down 30% more before closing and the remainder at closing. Michael Sipskins of 11 Partners said that so far units have sold for a blended price of $1,100 a square foot and are selling furnished. The majority of the buyers are from the United States. Guys, this is not on the water. This is nowhere near the water. Um, $1,100 a square foot is what they want. I can tell you based on data, uh, going price for a resale of condo in downtown Miami is three eighty-five dollars a foot. Um, John, what say you? Did they really sell 90% of their units um, in uh, two months? Well, the, the, thing, the thing that makes me doubt this is uh, the fact that they don't have their construction loan yet. If they had already sold 90%, uh, of the of the uh, you know if if ninety percent units had already been on the contract, man, time is money. They would have already had like lined up at the door, you know, ready to like finance the project right away. So I mean, like, uh, you know, come on, you know, and they're saying like they're going to get their construction financing sometime this summer. I mean, wh- what does that mean? You know, come on, guys. <laughs> if you if you've sold ninety percent of the building, I mean. That construction loan should have already been, you know, in hand. You guys should have been broke, breaking ground already. What, you know, it doesn't make any sense. The story doesn't make any sense. 
John, if you if you sold ninety percent of your units, and most developers will sell eighty five to ninety percent, they want to withhold ten to ten to fifteen percent because they want to have units that they can get a premium for once the building's delivered for those buyers who don't trust developers. The the, the buyers who want to walk in, touch and feel it before they put their cash down because they don't want to get jammed up in any kind of court process if the building doesn't come out um, as um, as planned. So, John, my question to you is: If you sold ninety percent of your building, isn't your price too low? Well, that's certainly, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in two months, come on, guys, you totally mispriced it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Mr. Fackler, this project's going to go up in and around um, the uh, cabaret, don't call the strip joint, called Eleven, which is right across the street from a, um, uh, you know, it's a watering hole that a lot of eclectic people hang out with, uh, hang out at called the corner, which I've heard is reopening now that Miami-Dade County has lifted the curfew. Um, John, you're not necessarily a real estate guy, but you know how much $1,100 a square foot means, and you know that neighborhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, did they underprice this building, or did they maybe uh, punch above their weight, achieving that price in that location? How, how in the world could you get $1,100 a square foot? I, I, I don't understand. Is, that, is it a misprint, or what's the average per square foot? Um, a blended price of eleven hundred. That means the half of them are even higher than eleven hundred dollars a square foot. That's crazy. I listen. I uh, you talked about the corner uh, across the street, and I, that happens to be, as you know, one of my watering holes. The place that dumped. It's a classic Miami <laughs> dive. And it's and I'm curious. My other point of curiosity, between, you know, besides the square footage, is is the cabaret slash strip club still part of this complex, or is it part of the complex? I mean. What they're using the name, or is the strip club still in existence, or what? I don't, I don't get that. No, okay, so I don't know the plan specifically, but my understanding and reading the articles is that this will be on a site across the street. So the strip joint okay. will stand where it is, and then on, across the street is where they would put up this tower. That's my understanding. How the hell? But, but I haven't seen, you, I haven't seen the literature. I'm only reading. But, I, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> How are you going to, you going to put up a high end new construction condo? Um, Right across from a strip club, a cabaret. But it, it'll also have a hotel component. It'll have a hotel component. Um, they're trying to take this 11 brand, make it into some sort yeah. of national, international type of brand. Yeah. Uh, kind of like right. think, think Las Vegas. You know what happens in Vegas? Yeah, Vegas. Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That type, yeah. That, that type of concept is what I'm, I'm speculating on. I don't know that to be exactly. the, you know, to be the case. And that, you know, something all, all kidding aside, that's actually kind of original and it's kind of an interesting concept if that if they could pull that off. Because that sounds to be more like a Vegas, con- you know, concept like than anything that's done in Miami. I mean, uh, now the other side of this could be because of the pandemic. Maybe there's a pent up demand for strip clubs. Everybody wants to get out there and, uh, you know, hang out with the girls. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Eleven hundred dollars a square foot. Yeah. yeah, I agree with John. I mean, it's insane, especially with the square footage. Okay. I mean, there's, no the, okay. there's no cops in the area if that's even close to that, right? Um, you do have one comp. One comp was for a project called uh, 1000 Museum, designed by Zaha Hadid. That was priced uh, yeah. somewhere in the same ballpark. That one's actually on Biscayne Boulevard. And that yeah. one, if you uh, recall, they got hit with a foreclosure action that shortly thereafter they were able to refi their way out of it. And the reason they, they yeah. got hit with the foreclosure action is they couldn't sell the units. They sold a, a majority but they didn't sell enough to pay off the loan, and therefore it led to a foreclosure, which then led to a refi, led to a refi. Yeah, so, 
But that's, that's, an, up, 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 that's an upscale area. You know, the corner, this place is going to be uh, pro- proposed to be next to the corner, and I was almost mugged twice at the corner, so. <laughs> and you don't exactly just walk for, around like you got tons of cash. Yeah, just for some perspective, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, well, it, all right. Um, for for whatever it's worth, guys, we, uh, so this development group that's doing 11 also is the uh, group that's going to be doing the Waldorf Astoria Tower. So, And they've gotten permission to do the tallest condo or the tallest tower in, in downtown Miami, tallest tower south of New York, as they describe it. Um, so who knows? I mean, maybe they'll surprise us. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it is Miami. So, you know, you never know. You never know. Maybe they will surprise us. Uh, Jeff, I want to go to you on this particular story because I want to see if you can give us some sentiment about financing uh, possibilities and, and, and what's really available on the street. So I'll read the headline, and then I will get into the first couple graphs. Uh, this is coming out of the Commercial Observer. Um, OKO Group, as well as Kane International, they secured a $128 million loan for Miami Luxury Condo Tower. Uh, Bank OZK, which used to be called Bank of the Ozarks, is funded uh, a $128.3 million construction loan for OKO Group and Kane International's Una Residence, a 47-story luxury condo tower in Miami. As a side note, guys, they were building this thing on spec. They didn't have enough um, uh, sales to get financing, and therefore the developers used his own cash. He then uh, ran into a situation where he uh, created a friendship with a gentleman who was involved with Kane International, the threw, uh, two threw in together, and then lo and behold, uh, a month later, it sounds like they have financing. So that's just my little side note, Jeff, before you comment. Now let me read you the next graph. 135-unit waterfront condo project located at 174 Southeast 25th Road in downtown uh, Miami's South um, Brickell neighborhood. Broke around in May 2020 and slated for completion in 2023. Condos are priced from $2 million to $7.4 million with two penthouses listed for a price tag of up to $21.6 million. Jeff, how readily available is financing on the street for condo uh, construction, especially in South Florida? Oh, that's I, I don't know about condo construction, but I would say the general feeling among lenders is we're in the middle of a housing boom. If you if you've got product to, to build and you're ready to go, we're going to give you the money. Um, so that I mean that seems to be what happened here. Uh, you know, that, notwithstanding any any ironies of a of the Bank of the Ozarks uh, lending on on Brickell, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean I. I the, this is the, the price point where there's a lot of money right now. We're in the midst of a, an asset boom, a stock market boom, a real estate boom. So, um, you know, I, it, it seems like there's the, the developers are having the, the difficulty selling product in, in South Florida and a difficulty selling expensive product in South Florida. So I, I think this uh, financing deal is just reflecting that. Got it, got it, got it. And, and John, your comments, uh, let me read one graph, and then if you could just uh, sort of provide your comments. The loan comes after $76 million in condo sales at the property occurred since the start of the year, according to the information from the developers. John, we're in April. They did $76 million in condo sales uh, since January. That means they're putting $20 million on the board a month. Um, what does that sound like, John? Well, you know, they have a great location. <laughs> Um, so that, that, that's right in the water, you know, for starters. Yeah. yeah. Right on, right on the water. Yeah. Awesome location. But, you know, I, I was just chuckling cause you know, what strange bedfellows, you know, you got the bankers from Arkansas financing a project by a Russian, you know, uh, billionaire. It's, it's kind of an interesting pair. Um, 
And, um, you know, I have to say, like, Bank OZK uh, has been, like, super aggressive. I mean, they, they um, you know, they haven't skipped a beat. And I have to say, they, they really take on some pretty, uh, uh, you know, pretty aggressive projects. I mean, condo towers, you know, uh, in the pandemic. I mean, these guys really are... Um, it's, it's, they're, they're some of the most aggressive bankers that I've seen. And I, you know, I have to say like the history of out of state bankers in Florida is not great. Um, you know, they come down here for during the boom, um, banks from Alabama and Tennessee and Georgia and Ohio. And, you know, they've all come down here at, at the start of a boom and make a lot of money. And then, um, you know, then, you know, Florida, you know, ways and down um afterwards so you know it's always interesting to me to see out-of-state bankers financing these big projects and glam projects and very um you know uh you know very aggressively i'm sure yeah 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 yeah. no no that's a great point um uh before we break up let me just throw out a tip uh if i may to the listener (laughs) Um, if you're going to buy pre-construction, based on my experience, if you're going to buy pre-construction condo and a project has bank financing, what that should say to you as a buyer is that somebody's actually looked at their books and all the bullshit that the developers and the marketing people are putting out, it's somewhat vetted because the bank is putting its own cash up. When a project does not have financing and it's being built on spec, speculation that it will get built because the developer has enough cash sort of get the game going, get the, you know, get the ball rolling, then you should be a little bit more skeptical. So that's the takeaway. If you see bank financing involved, chances are what you're being told, most of it is probably true uh, because you got a lender who's uh, basically signing on the dotted line and backing it versus a project that doesn't have bank financing. My experience is this, sometimes those don't necessarily play out the way you think they will. So we'll go ahead. We'll take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, I'm going to ask the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Back in 1995, I got my real estate license, but I didn't practice for a number of years simply because I was writing about real estate as a journalist. 2006, I broke out and I launched a company called Condo Vultures. The idea was to try to use information, uh, data, and know-how to try to get the best deals on behalf of buyers. So if you are a buyer and you're looking for a deal, you're looking to try to understand the condo market in the Tri-County, South Florida area, myself or my team are here to help you to get a hold of us. Please call us at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. If you're listening to this podcast, think about who else is. If you want to reach that crowd, which tends to be investors, buyers, developers, lenders, why not advertise on the Condo Vultures podcast? To do so, give us a call at the office, 305-865-5859. 305-865-5859, or send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. Now we're going to ask the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. Mr. Fackler, I don't think you've been right on a prediction, and I can't remember the last time you were right on a prediction, actually, uh, is what I should have said. Um, why don't we start a winning streak here? Why don't you give us a prediction um, uh, that we're going to see play out in the future? What say you, Mr. Fackler? Well, I have to tell you, I actually just changed my predictions. Uh, after hearing Jeff's expert analysis uh, regarding the eviction moratoriums, I was uh, thinking about that, that Biden might not extend the January 30th 
cutoff date, but after listening to Jeff, I think I'd be wrong about that one. So let me let me do a quick switch. Um, and after hearing um, what John said about 11, the financing, I don't think that's going to come out of the ground. I think that's that's a uh, not going to happen. And I'm not saying it's a bad idea because it is. You know, we talked about it. It's, it's a very novel idea. Um, but uh, as far as you know, putting something up that's sort of in the Las Vegas tradition. I think it's more to do with the pandemic. I don't think we're ready for that type of, um, you know, huge development downtown uh, until the pandemic sort of sorts itself out. So I think this this project is going to be put on hold, and it's not going to be put, come out of the ground for a couple of years, if at if at all. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, John, what uh, what say you? Um, well, we've been reading about uh, how insurance, uh, the insurance issues, uh, homeowners insurance issues could be one of the things that uh, puts a damper on Florida's real estate boom. And um, uh, because of the uh, home, the, the rate, the rate increases have been, you know, pretty astronomical. And I think uh, with legislative session, I think ending next week, I think legislators will figure out a fix um, because, uh, of course, the uh, real estate is the business of Florida and uh, no one wants to stop a boom, uh, certainly not politicians. Um, so uh, I think next week we're going to get a fix on the insurance mess and um, and we can carry on with our boom. Interesting. Wow. A lot of people are going to like hearing that, John. Because you're most of the time as is is as often as Backler is wrong, you're right. So that's <laughs> that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah. and, and and then Jeff, um, why don't you give us your first prediction ever? Give the listener something they ought to keep on the uh on the radar and watch for in the in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. Okay, well first before I give my prediction, I have to I know John might might be right all the time, but uh I don't know. He's putting a lot of uh Putting a lot of faith in the uh, the willingness and ability of the legislature to affect the insurance market, so I I think that the Florida real estate boom is going to continue in spite of soaring in homeowners insurance premiums, just because that's how it always works out. Uh, but so I, my prediction, I, I'll say my prediction is two hours, and that's how long it's going to take to drive from West Palm Beach to Miami on I-95 because we've we're we're back to. Uh, a population boom in Florida. We've got people moving here from all over the country. We've got all these new projects going up. Um, and I, I just read, I think, in the Sun Sentinel that uh, I-95 is going to be under construction for the next 10 years. So as if it had uh, had stopped being under construction at any point in the, the past 10 years. But it, I'm going to say the uh, the gridlock on 95 is going to be uh, even more painful than it has been. Oh, my God. Listen, I hope you fall in Fackler's camp in terms of not being correct. But chances are, correct <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's one that I hope I'm wrong on, but I, I don't think so. Okay, so let me preface mine by just uh, reading you a, a tidbit that comes out of CNBC. U.S. State Department said on Monday it will boost its do not travel guidance to about 80% of the countries worldwide. What does that have to do with my prediction? My prediction is Florida tourism will continue to do fantastic. Why? Because people can't go anywhere. People in the United States are getting vaccinated. I spoke to a friend in India. 
He's telling me about how dire the situation is over there. Um, you know, parts of Europe are still on lockdown. You know, short of uh, Israel and some other smaller countries, most countries are still tra- uh, struggling with the pandemic. So the ability to go out and take some of that cash that, uh, and wealth that people have realized because of the stock market run-up and the real estate uh, run-up, they want to travel somewhere. Where are you going to go? And chances are they're going to come to Florida. So, John, you always talk about how it's hard to get a restaurant reservation during the season, and you're hoping it's going to clear up as we come into the summer. I'm predicting it will not, and I'm predicting we have a very strong tourism season for the next 6 to 12 months down here in Florida, not because people want to come to Florida, but basically there's nowhere else to go. So with that, guys, we'll go ahead. We'll take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, we're going to get into the comments. This is Peter Zaluski of the Condo Vultures podcast. I hope you're enjoying the podcast, and I wanted to alert you that if you have a property that you're looking to sell in the Tri-County, South Florida area, I would encourage you to reach out to Jenny Hortus, a licensed real estate broker with CVRRealty.com. She's my partner. She's been in the business for uh, north of 15 years. More importantly, she knows the market. She knows how to get a deal done. And she also realizes that it's more important to get a price that you can accept and sell the property rather than to hold firm on some price that's never going to be achieved and ultimately languish on the market. So if you're looking to do do a deal that you want a skilled expert who can help you sell a property, reach out to Jenny Hortis at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit her website, cvrrealty.com. Dot com. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. This is Peter Zalewski. Now we're going to get into the comments. If you, the listener, if you want to comment, you like what we're saying, you dislike it, you want to compliment, you want to criticize, you want to ask me questions, send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. All of the comments we get, we read during the podcast and we discuss them. So, Mr. Fackler, what do, what do we got in terms of comments? We've got a comment from Ilya from the Treasure Coast. And Ilya? Um, he, went to, he wanted to comment first, uh, break this into two parts. He wanted to first comment on your Swedro, uh, Swedro uh, podcast. He mentions, Peter, how are you getting all these Mavericks? Are they hanging out at the same place somewhere? I think if, if, one, can just, I think if one can just sit in the room with all these people for 20 minutes, it might increase IQ level for at least 20, by at least 20 points. Um, maybe uh, you can... Mention Peter to our listeners about your uh, podcast with Mr. Swidro. Okay, so every Friday I do what's called a, what we call a real estate players profile. I have a one-on-one conversation with somebody who's influential in the real estate world or the economy. Ask them about what's really going on, and I get straight talk. So this previous week, I had on a um, an architect that I would call a star architect. If you call him a star architect, they'll probably copy right in the mouth. He doesn't think consider himself a star architect. In his words, star architects design stuff from the street, uh, not for the people living in them, versus everything he designs is uh, based on the person living there and not necessarily the outside. This is a gentleman who worked with a, uh, a, a legendary architect down here called Morris Lapidus. Some of his projects include the Fountain Blue, the Eden Rock, Lincoln Road Mall. So this architect, his name is Robert Swedro. He gave us an hour of his time, and basically he cut through all the bullshit associated with the condo market, and he gave great tips in terms of what buyers ought to be considering when they're looking at buying a condo. And he also pushed back about the whole idea of buying on hype, buying on a name brand, buying on some glossy um, uh, literature, and more so how you actually buy a condo. I would tell everybody this is a must-listen 
podcast if you're interested in condominiums, whether you are selling them, you are buying them, you are, you know, anything involved with it. If you have any kind of, if you're a lender, if you have any curiosity about condominiums and how do they really work from an expert, this guy's done 3,500 projects around the world, including 120 in Aventura alone. He is Don Sofer, the founder of Aventura. He was a hand-picked architect for most of the stuff that Sofer did, including Jeffrey Sofer, who now is um, uh, involved with uh, Turnberry uh, in terms of building all these new projects. This is a go-to guy. So he gave us an hour of his time, and it's a podcast definitely worth listening to, and that's what uh, Ilio was uh, referencing. So right. anybody want to comment about that uh, podcast or anything I said? That was an awesome podcast. It was terrific, full of insightful information, lots of great history. I mean, it was it was terrific. Well, thank you. Thank you. No, no, Robert Swedro is just, he's amazing. If you ever have a chance to listen to him speak and, and the way he can cut through, you, you, you know, my experience is when you, when you talk to somebody who's, if they can just make everything simple for you, that means they know a lot about what's going on. It's the people who try to complicate stuff. They're the ones who don't really know what's going on, in my, in my experience. And Robert can just make everything nice and simple and help you sort of see the, tra- you know, he's very transparent in terms of the way the industry works, which, um, you know, it is what it is. Um, Mr. Fackler, what, what, what else do we got from Ilya? He had a couple more comments regarding the roundtable uh, from last week, uh, particularly related to the housing bubble. We were talking about that. About, and he says prices are off the roof. Nobody is disputing that. But he's really who's buying? People who want to live in a house and uh, stop renting or folks that are looking for a second home. Speculators are there, but not in droves, as in 2003 to 2007. Banks supposedly evaluated buyers' ability to repay their loan in a much better way. Rates are low um, and are getting an inflow of buyers. Don't forget, he's in the uh, he's a real estate investor, Ilya. So uh, getting an inflow of buyers as well uh, as an internal migration of sub-markets. Um, so he, he, he's really curious about this. What, you know, what will stop it? Um, will it stop or will it continue? Plateau as, as um, um, back in the back in the eighties, since nineteen eighties. Um, and then he, he he amends this by saying, "What are John F's thoughts on the subject?" I want I want to hear his opinion so I will know the reality will be completely the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> You're legendary, Factor. Your ability to predict things. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, I'm getting taken out at the knees here, left and right. Um, he also made the comment, why is John out there uh, out and about despite getting only one uh, vaccine shot? Isn't it too early? So John got a shot there, too. Nice, nice, nice. Um, uh, Jeff, I want to ask you, you, you just came on, uh, this is the first podcast with us. Let, let me just get your sentiment. I got it from the guys over the course of time. Um, you know, we got a lot of positive news. Uh, we're talking about how there's no inventory, uh, interest rates are low, yada, yada, yada. Um, what's the sense you're getting? Should people just embrace this and go all in? Or they need to be cautiously optimistic and be fearful that maybe something bad is around the corner. What, what do you hear from some of the sources you speak to in terms of, uh, you know, when you're reporting out a variety of different stories and talking to some of the economists and bankers and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I, the sense I get from from developers, from investors, uh, from lenders, has been that uh, you know everyone's uh, 
like just really optimistic now. Maybe I don't know if they're quite irrationally exuberant, but but somewhere close to that. But the, the downside is that this this is creating a real affordability squeeze. So uh, I, I mean, the, the people who are buying these two million dollar uh, units on on Brickle aren't the people who are, are working in the the restaurants uh, on on Brickle. And so, I mean, those folks are just being further and further priced out when, when we get these kind of price booms and we've got, uh, you know, wealth coming in from all over the country. And the, the folks who are buying are sort of uh, untethered from the local economy. They, they don't need a, a wage to, to afford a home and stuff for it. So I guess that's, that's going to be the, the real downside is, uh, you know, how, how does this affect affordability for, for middle class and even upper middle class to the people living in South Florida? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, and that is Jeff Ostrowski. He's a senior mortgage writer at Bankrate. He's been a journalist close to 30 years down here in the state of Florida. We also have Jean Gruce, who was a journalist north of 25 years, and including a gig at the Tampa Review. Right now he runs an operation called Gruce Communications, uh, where he does public relations and marketing. And then finally, the illustrious John Fackler. He used to work at the South Florida Business Journal, where he wrote about white-collar crime and publicly traded companies based in South Florida. Right now he uh, does public relations and marketing related to health and wellness. And I'm Peter Zalewski. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to tune in every Wednesday when we do these recorded roundtables. If you're not yet a subscriber to the podcast, please go ahead and do so wherever you're listening to your podcast. If you like what we're doing, leave us a rating and a comment. The more ratings and comments we get, the more likely we are to spread our message and move towards accomplishing the mission, which is bringing straight talk to an overhyped real estate market. And then finally, as a reminder, if you want to send an email uh, to comments, send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Again, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself and get uh, inoculated. Ciao, ciao.